Well, thank you once again for joining me in our exploration through the book of Genesis. I am your host, Randy Duncan, and we are making our way verse by verse through Genesis. In this episode, we're going to start chapter 6, and we're not going to get very far in this episode. I'll go ahead and tell you that because we have quite the controversial passage to deal with right off the bat. But as a reminder, in the last episode, we discussed the genealogy from Adam to Noah and also looked at some of the possible ways to interpret and make sense of the long lifespans that are described in chapter 5. And that brings us now to chapter 6. And in this chapter, we're going to be introduced to the Nephilim. And if you've never heard of the Nephilim, then hold on, because we're going to go on an interesting ride. But before we get started, I would remind you of Acts 17.11, where Paul tells us, He says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. In other words, receive the word with eagerness, but then you go and study the Bible to prove what is being taught is correct or not. Remember also that one of the barriers to truth is the assumption that you already have it. Now, in full disclosure, this very chapter... And a study of the Nephilim was what prompted me to begin studying the Bible more seriously over 15 years ago. I mean, I thought I knew the basics of the Bible. You know, I mean, I knew about creation and I knew a lot of the stories in the Old Testament like Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, Jonah and the well. And then, of course, I was familiar with the main teachings of Jesus. I mean, I was already a Christian. But when I heard about the Nephilim, I was generally surprised that there was something like this that I had never heard before. And then, of course, after learning of the possibilities surrounding these verses, it caused me to ask questions and do some research, which led to answers, of course, but then also to more questions. And the journey for me continues. But that's how a study of the Bible goes. I mean, it's similar to learning about many things, just like science. I mean, when you learn something, it answers a question, of course, but then the problem is that it leads to two more questions. So, with all that said... We begin chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first four verses. And verse 1 begins, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So what is quickly described is the rising population on the earth at that time. As it says, when men began to multiply on the earth. And it also says that daughters were born to them. Okay, that makes sense. So far, so good. But verse 2 is where it begins to get very interesting. It says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive or beautiful, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And so you might ask, well, what's the problem? I mean, that makes sense that men would see these women and want to marry them. And that would be fine, except that's not what it says. It says the sons of God saw the daughters of man, that they were beautiful. So the question becomes, Who are the sons of God that are referred to here? And that is the crux of the problem. 
Now, this has been described as one of the thorniest issues in all of the Old Testament. And for you to interpret these verses correctly, that is what you're going to have to decide for yourself. Who are the sons of God that are mentioned here? And why is it important who the sons of God are here? It's important because, as verse 4 reads, the sons of God went into the daughters of men and had children by them. So whoever these sons of God are, they are marrying women and they're fathering children by them. Now, there are three primary interpretations or views as to who these sons of God were. These three views are typically referred to as the angel view, the Sethite view, and the ruler's view. So I want to begin with the angel view. This was the interpretation most favored by ancient Judaism and the early church. The earliest view of who these sons of God were, which was held unanimously as far as we know until the 2nd or 3rd century, was that the sons of God were angelic beings. I'll say that again. The earliest view was that these sons of God were fallen angels. Now that term, sons of God, in Hebrew is benaha Elohim, and it means just like it is translated, sons of God. And that same word, that same expression, is used three other times in the Old Testament, and in each instance, it is referring to angels. One instance is Job 1.6. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the benaha Elohim, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The next instance is found in Job 2.1, which reads, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So again, in this second example, just like the first, it's again referring to angels. The last instance is also found in Job, in Job 38.7. And in this chapter, which happens to be one of my favorites in all of Scripture, God is explaining to Job about creation and how God was there at the creation, but that Job wasn't. And so, who was Job to be questioning God about anything? So basically, God is letting Job have it here. And in that conversation, God says to Job, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together, and all of the Benaha Elohim, the sons of God, shouted for joy? Again, that expression, the sons of God, here is referring to angels. And it makes sense if you think about it, as there weren't any humans around when God created the earth, so no humans could have shouted for joy as they witnessed the creation. Now, as I said, this was the unanimous view up until the 2nd or 3rd century. And this interpretation also seems to make the most sense out of Jude 6 and 7. Listen to what Jude 6 and 7 says. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept an eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And verse 7 continues, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is comparing those angels to Sodom and Gomorrah in that they likewise indulged in sexual immorality and perversion. Now the Greek words that are translated here as unnatural desire are heteros, which just means another 
uh, something different, something not of the same kind or a nature. And the Greek word sarx, which simply means flesh, just like we would think of it today. So Jude describes angels who did not stay within their proper habitat, their own proper dwelling, but they pursued strange flesh, flesh that was not of the same kind as their own. Incidentally, the word here used by Jude in describing Sodom and Gomorrah and their, quote, indulging in sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. Now, one of the counter arguments to this angel view that some people point to is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verses 29 and 30, when he was asked about a woman who'd been married and widowed multiple times. You might remember that. But Jesus responds and says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so some people say, look, see, the angels in heaven don't marry, so they couldn't have married women here on earth. But the problem with that argument is that we're talking about fallen angels, and fallen angels aren't in heaven. So that then is the angel view in a nutshell. So let's take a quick look at the Sethite view. This view basically says that the sons of God referred to here are simply referring to the sons of and the descendants of Seth. Now proponents of this view argue that what's in mind here is that the line of Seth, Seth's descendants, are the godly line, whereas the descendants of Cain are an ungodly line. And remember, we talked about them in the last episode. Over the last couple of episodes, we've covered the descendants of Adam and Eve down through Noah. One genealogy mentioned the line of Cain, who killed Abel, and which included Lamech, the one who, remember, boasted of being even more vengeful than Cain. There's nothing good said about any of Cain's descendants. On the other hand, we also saw in the last episode the genealogy of Seth, which ends with Noah. And in this description, there's nothing bad mentioned about any of the descendants listed. And so you basically have two lines of descendants described, one godly, the other ungodly. And the thought here is that the sons of God mentioned in chapter 6 is referring to the godly line of Seth, which is why obviously it's called the Sethite view, and that the daughters of men are referring to the women from the ungodly line of Cain. So in this view, the sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and all that is being described here is that they saw the beautiful women from the line of Cain, and they intermarried with the ungodly descendants of Cain. And so what you have here is simply a description of marriage between believers and unbelievers, which led to greater and greater wickedness. Now, the strongest evidence for this position is that immediately prior to this chapter, we had a genealogy described of both Seth and Cain. So the fact that this description follows that one immediately uh, may suggest that this is what's in view. Some also argue that if this view is correct, it may help explain why in Exodus and Deuteronomy, God forbade Israelites from marrying Canaanite women. Now, one of the problems with this interpretation, however, is that nowhere are the lines of Seth referred to as sons of God. That expression is not used anywhere of Seth's descendants. Remember, we saw examples of where angels are absolutely referred to with that exact phrase, but nowhere are Sethites referred to like that. Another difficulty with this view is that it requires us to believe the entire line of Seth was godly 
while the entire line of Cain was ungodly. I mean, nowhere in Scripture are we told that. In fact, when we get to the flood, we learn that there are no righteous people except for Noah and his family. In other words, if the Sethites are the good guys, why are they drowning in the flood along with everyone else? And the last difficulty I will mention with this Sethite view is the description of the daughters of men. In this view, you're forced to assume that when the Bible says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, you're forced to assume that this is describing only the daughters from the line of Cain. But again, nowhere in scripture are we told that. These verses say that men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, period. But nowhere does it say that these men are the men of Cain's line only, nor does it say that for the daughters of these men. So this is an assumption you must make in order to accept this view. So let's take a look at the third view real quick. The third view is sometimes referred to as the ruler view, meaning that the phrase sons of God here is merely referring to rulers and kings and nobles. These were men of position and of power. And so what's in view here is that these men lusted for power and wealth and desired to make a name for themselves. And their sin was not the intermarriage between groups, but it was polygamy. It was the same type of sin that Lamech committed. Remember, Lamech was from the line of Cain, and he's the first mentioned to have taken two wives. Although what is in view here is more akin to what we would consider a harem. But perhaps Lamech taking two wives was merely the first step in that direction. The problem with this view, though, is similar to that of the Sethite view, in that you have to assume that the daughters of men is referring only to the daughters of Cain. And then also, nowhere in scripture are nobles or kings or rulers or aristocrats or anything like that referred to using that same expression, sons of God. So the counter argument to this ruler's view is made that, look, you would never come to this conclusion or this interpretation simply by reading these verses. The motivation to come up with this sort of interpretation is the fact that you don't like the angel view and you're searching for a way around it. So that is a brief summary of the three primary views of who the sons of God might be. And I encourage you to do your own research or study and see what conclusions you tend towards. But I want to shift our focus now to the Nephilim, which were the offspring of the union between the sons of God, whoever they were, and women. Now it's been a minute since we read verse 4, so to remind you what the Bible says, I'm going to reread verse 4. And it says, And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now in some translations, uh, such as the King James Version, that word Nephilim is translated as giants. So it reads that there were giants on the earth in those days. But the Hebrew word used there is actually Nephilim which is translated as Nephilim. Now, they did happen to be giants, but that's probably not the best translation. The two Hebrew root words used for the word are actually nephal, which means to fall, and together with the Hebrew root yim, it's been suggested that Nephilim literally means fallen ones. So the very name Nephilim, some argue, speaks to the nature of fallen angels. 
Others, on the other hand, argue that, look, it's just referring to ordinary humans and that they're just morally flawed. But what else do we know about the Nephilim? Well, unfortunately, not a whole lot. The Nephilim are referred to only here and in one other passage in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. If you remember, this is where Caleb and Joshua went to spy out the land of Canaan that God had told Israel to take. The spies that went before Caleb and Joshua, they came back with a bad report. And in Numbers 13, starting in verse 32, it says, And so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And this description here is one of the reasons why people consider the Nephilim to be giants. So scripture seems to indicate that the Nephilim are also fighting for the ungodly Canaanites and Philistines. Now, most of you, whether you're a believer or not, you're probably familiar with the most famous Philistine of them all, Goliath. In the Bible, Goliath is described as being at least 9 feet 9 inches tall. He carried 250 pounds of armor and weapons. Now, the Hebrews used three different cubit measurements. So, depending on which one they were using, it could have been the royal cubit, the common, or the long cubit. So depending on which one they actually used here, Goliath could have been almost 12 feet tall, but he was at least 9 feet 9 inches tall. Now there's a lot of literature outside of the Bible that refers to giants. I mean the Greeks, the Romans, uh, the Mesopotamians, Phoenicians, Egyptians, they all told stories of these great and terrible heroes, men of supernatural size and strength. I mean Greek literature is especially rich in this. In all of the accounts outside of the Bible, these superhuman types of men, they come from sexual unions between the immortal gods and humans. And they certainly resemble the Nephilim in regards to their uh, penchant for fighting and their superhuman feats, and some even say birth defects. In fact, in 2 Samuel 21.20, we read that, And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants. So some suggest that the legends of Greek mythology actually originate with the Nephilim described in the Bible. Now don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not in any way suggesting that Nephilim are mythological and now the Bible is trying to make it like real history. Not at all. In fact, what I'm saying is that some people suggest just the opposite, that Greek mythology took real history as described in the Bible and created its mythology. But here's something to consider regarding the Nephilim, and whether you believe that they were the offspring of angels or just two normal human beings. From a strictly scientific perspective, the size of the Nephilim and the feats ascribed to them goes beyond the limits of biological engineering. And what I mean is, once you reach a certain size, you begin to, to lose mobility and agility. I mean, the bone mass required to support muscles and, and just resist gravity increases geometrically the taller you get. And so you start to experience a, a severe loss of mobility and stamina. I mean, modern NBA basketball players demonstrate 
that we can still be athletic and mobile and agile at around six and a half to seven and a half feet tall. But beyond that, it starts to become problematic. The point is, natural bodies cannot manifest the combination of speed, power, and agility, that load-carrying capacity, as is attributed to the Nephilim. This may help explain also why Saul, uh, the king of Israel, who the Bible describes as, as a soldier and an impressive young man, and that he was a head taller than any other Israelite, it explains maybe why he was so terrified of Goliath. I mean, if you know anything about Saul, if you've read anything described of him in Scripture, I don't think Saul was the kind of man who would have been afraid of or so intimidated by someone who was just very tall, but who was uncoordinated with no agility or no true fighting ability. No, these giants were something different. And so the question is, could offspring this different be produced by humans alone, or would it have required a supernatural influence? Look, there, there's just so much more that could be said or discussed around the Nephilim, but I hope this episode has at least served to pique your curiosity or motivate you to look back through these verses. But I will leave that up to you for further research and further study. And with that, I'm going to close this episode, and we'll pick it up from right here next week. I know your time is valuable, and there are many other things that you could be listening to right now. So thank you so much for choosing to listen to this Bible study. And until next week, God bless.